Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me in the studio this week, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us, we have Spike economist, Luke Gittos. Hi. Coming up on today's show, the implosion of the SNP, the rise of legal activism and the madness of Extinction Rebellion. So a lot of papers are reporting that Nicholas Sturgeon could be arrested at any moment. Senior SNP party figures have said it could be inevitable even. Tom, this would be an extraordinary development. Mm -hmm. How did we get here? Well, in a way, we can only lay out the the plain facts of the matter for reasons that we'll get onto. But essentially, this um, is a police investigation that has been going on in Scotland since 2021 into the question of the SNP's finances. Particularly, there is this quote-unquote missing £600,000, which was raised from SNP members and supporters to fight another independence campaign and seemingly questions about what happened to that money. Is it fully accounted for and so on? In the past week, uh, we've seen the a, the arrest and the questioning of Colin Beattie, who's the SNP's national treasurer for the best for more than twenty years, in fact, and that came after Peter Morrell, who was the chief executive of the SNP. He was also he is also Nicola Sturgeon's husband, of course. Similarly, being arrested, neither of them were charged. We should say. Um, but nevertheless, um, we've created a situation where, as many of the papers reported, as you say, the only kind of senior SNP official who is named on their accounts and so on, who hasn't been arrested and interviewed by the police, is Nicola Sturgeon. Mm. Really striking scandal, obviously has all kinds of potential political ramifications for the SNP and their new first minister. Um, but in a sense, when we're talking about the scandal itself, there's not much more than that that we can say because of the fact that under contempt of court, law, which is particularly stringent in Scotland, there's very little we can say at all. So you have this very strange situation where you have a criminal investigation and an attendant political scandal of huge import. Mm. You know, I mean, if something similar was happening to Boris Johnson's Tories, if an investigation was even opened, I'm sure the Guardian would be calling for a military coup and so on. It's very significant. And yet you can't really talk about it because of these rules. So it's a very strange mismatch between the seriousness of the investigation, which of course is ongoing, two sides to it and so on, but also the um, inability of us to talk about it in anything other than the plain facts of the matter because of those laws that are in place. Yeah. Um, Luke, with with that in mind, um, we are allowed to talk about the politics, about um, what this might mean for the SNP. What have you made of that? Well, I used this as an opportunity to go back and look at some of the other scandals uh, involving the SNP, because this is a scandal, no matter what you say about the investigation. It's certainly that. And I was looking into the ferry debacle mm. in Scotland, which isn't talked about very often south of the border, I don't think, but which, you know, since 2018, um, the SNP have been mired in this problem around um, procurement for ferries for the islands off the coast of Scotland. It's uh, The process of building two new ferries has been uh, mired in delay, significant over expenditure. And all the while, this was Hamza Youssef as transport minister. So Hamza Youssef faced very serious questions in the course of his, in the early part of his uh, uh, position as first minister uh, around this scandal. This hasn't gone away for him. Um, And there were very serious questions raised by Audit Scotland and by the BBC about how contracts related to this process were awarded. Now, there's no conclusive evidence that anyone in the SNP did anything wrong, let alone criminal. Um, but it is interesting that the SNP are not talked about more often for their history of involvement with scandal, particularly as this is a very significant uh, stain on on particularly Hamza Yusuf's history. Mm. 
Um, had that been, say, as Tom mentioned, Boris Johnson's Tory party, you might have thought there would be more clamour for proper investigation into what went on. And there is perhaps, you know, there's a lot of commentary at the moment about how the SNP has historically operated around not just the ferry issue, but I also read commentary around the treatment of the Alex Salmond allegations as being quite closed from public scrutiny mm. and operating in quite a, a, a way which was resistant to the scrutiny regarding their inner workings. So I think we can say that much. And just on that question of um, kind of closeness, I mean, the contempt of court problem has been really serious mm -hmm. uh, in this discussion. You can imagine how much more livelier debate there there might be if people didn't feel the need to watch their words. Mm -hmm. It's much stricter in Scotland. You could end up with a two-year prison sentence, potentially an unlimited fine if you're seen to prejudice the outcome of this case. That is surely untenable in a democratic society. In a democratic society, I think in an increasingly social media society, I mean, it's worth pointing out that these rules don't just apply to what journalists can talk about, what podcasters can talk about. It's anyone tweeting about this particular matter, discussing on their social media feeds subject to these laws as well. And as you say, I think it's just an untenable situation. Um, and it's also one that these laws, I think, do hold the public in contempt is basically mm. on the grounds that if you have a juror at some point who is... Um, trying to review the evidence and so on, that if they have read any commentary, that they won't, if they have read any kind of speculation, that they won't be able to, again, come to some sort of reasoned judgment on what might have happened in this particular case. And obviously the idea, there are plenty of other countries where you are able to discuss these things much more openly. The US being one, Mick Hume noted this in his column about this whole issue past week where there's often concerns about trials becoming a bit of a circus. But at yeah. the same time, the flip side of that is that you do able to have proper political debate about these things. So there is that sort of thing where it's, again, I think in the silence around this, you kind of see mm. how when the circumstances are like this, when the stakes are as high as this as these are, um, that those restrictions aren't just a kind of legal nicety. They have a serious impact on our ability to discuss these things democratically and hold people to account. Yeah, definitely. And we should talk a bit about Hamza Youssef. The um, arrest of Colin Beattie in particular was badly timed for mm. him. He was about to unveil um, his essentially his his programme for, for the year. Um, that was totally overshadowed. Arguably, the whole of um, his first few weeks of his premiership have been over shadowed his first ministership i say have been overshadowed by the, these scandals i mean do you feel a bit sorry for him luke at this stage i mean it's it's not a great um sorry is a strong word yeah yeah well when he was asked about he was asked the very pertinent question can you be sure that the smp is not running in a criminal way now under your leadership and he said no i don't believe it is and you sort of think well you sh this is the sort of thing you should know <laughs> leave one way or the other <laughs> and i do think that he is perhaps faced now with a situation that he doesn't know what's going on in his own party mm -hmm. um and therefore the allegations that he's facing from scottish labor that really he's not presiding over a functioning government uh, really do ring true it was it's was interesting that one of the ways that he's tried to distract from all this is that he's reached for the gender recognition act mm -hmm. everyone's or gender recognition bill everyone's favorite piece of legislation that was mm. slapped down by uh, the uk uh, government so popular nicola, so, nicola Sturgeon had to resign over it you know, yeah, yeah. What, what on earth is he thinking why has he gone for that <laughs> rather than something popular well i mean one could talk about how people who are particularly given over to these woke policies often pursue them with a certain zealotry um you could talk about how 
They want to make a virtue out of the fact that these things don't have popular support. In, in Hamza Yusuf's case, I think it is just a stupid decision, of, yeah. one of many stupid decisions, like answering that question in the way <laughs> that he did earlier this week. Um, I mean, he is trying and failing to, again, make this a kind of constitutional question. How mm. dare Westminster block us from from doing this? But it's abundantly clear to everyone, including his critics in the Alba party, Alex Salmon and so on, that this is, a, this is not going to help if anything could send <laughs> people in the other direction. Uh, but I think it does just underline what a bunglery is mm. again um and it was even interesting this week i mean the arrest of colin Beatty overshadowed his attempt at a reset to try and turn the corner on particular policies so he thought okay what is he going to try and pull out the bag here in the end he scrapped an unpopular recycling scheme or yeah. paused it not sure which said that scotland would re-enter international educational league of tables and the third one i forget because it was that similarly you know, not particularly really, You were really wowed by it. I think it was the ban on alcohol advertising, which was crazy <laughs> for all kinds of reasons. Um, but it was and the sort of thing that um, people, that we would oppose. But at the same time, it was it just shows you how all he's got is the bungling in a sense. Yeah. Like, what does he really stand for other than being <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon's kind of protege? And even then, he wasn't like he was the kind of groomed successor. Mm. He was like the the, the 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 spare part, the one who was there you yeah. know, at the time. So again, I think it just underlines how. Even he has all he has all this kind of crisis enveloping his first ministership, mm. but what does he have to back that up? What does he fall back on? Yeah, nothing really. Gaffs, it and seems. This is particularly tr- interesting in the light of the fact that the leadership race was quite um, venomous. You yeah, know, he had these live TV debates between where him and Kate Forbes taking bits out of each other mm. live in front of the voters. And effectively exposing repeatedly each other's weaknesses over and over again, and so you, you do wonder why uh, you know where the SNP goes from here. In, in, in I mean, if anywhere, you know, yeah. is, can they survive? And if they do survive, what's left of Hamza's um, mandate? That's a big question. Mm. And if you know, if, if Hamza Yusuf's uh, leadership is doomed to failure, what happens to the rest of it? And finally, Tom. It was only, what, nine weeks ago, roughly, when Nicola Sturgeon resigned. Mm-hmm. She cast our minds back to some of the praise that she was mm-hmm. getting, almost like Scotland's Jacinda Ardern, mm-hmm. um, beloved by liberals, um, especially for essentially for not being a Tory mm-hmm. um, in England. Do you think they'd be praising her to the hilt now? Or do you think people are going to kind of walk back some of those statements? Well, we'll see what happens and obviously where the investigation is concerned. I mean, it was interesting that this was already sort of ongoing, before um, she stepped down, many people had sort of speculated because she might have expected the investigation to ramp up, that that mm. might have informed her decision-making and so on. But I think if nothing else, that does remind us that despite all of the um, the saintly status that she attained, particularly amongst the kind of press south of the border, they never really paid much attention to what it was that was actually going on for her. And I think this is probably <laughs> another example of that. So the government's new illegal migration bill is set to contain some powers for the Home Secretary uh, that would allow her to ignore certain decisions from the European Court of Human Rights, particularly in relation to deportations. Now, Luke, a lot of people will remember um, about a year ago when um, an ECHR judge um, blocked a deportation flight due to go to Rwanda. This kind of uh, event They've been called um, pajama injunctions. Is this kind of neat name that um, the government has given them? Because the, you know it happened in the middle of the night. Just sort of, I don't even know whether it was a judge who who struck it down or, or a sort of functionary. Apparently, they're going to be getting rid of that, dealing with that issue. What do you make of that? Especially, you know, the, getting rid of the role of the ECHR. It's definitely a good thing. It should 
probably always have been part of our adoption of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights, that there should have been some uh, democratic power awarded to a minister to ignore what were, as you suggest, interim injunctions granted by the European Court. So last year, an interim, i.e. an injunction that was introduced in order to prevent something from happening before a decision of the European Court could be made, in this case, that flight leaving for Rwanda, um, can now be effectively ignored and democratically passed policy such as the uh, Rwanda policy, whether you like it or not, it was a, de- a policy of a democratically elected government. It's it's a good thing that um, a, a government minister can bypass these interim injunctions. They are awarded by a judge of the European Court, but they're reward that they're, they're they're granted without any consideration of the actual merits of the case. Yeah. So you could imagine. Um, policies being held up for months, maybe even, uh, you know, in excess of a year, two years, whilst the European court comes to make its final decision. Now, that's not a tenable state of affairs. You can't have it where an international court, which has absolutely no democratic accountability, is able to issue these interim injunctions on the basis of very little scrutiny from judges that have no accountability whatsoever, and thereby hold up a democratic process. That's not tenable. And arguably, this power to ignore the the interim decisions of those judges should have been built into our mechanism from the start. So so it's a welcome addition. Tom, there are lots of problems with this illegal migration Mm -hmm. bill, but shouldn't they be opposed democratically rather than through the courts? I think that's exactly it. I think um, regardless of how you feel about the Rwanda policy, regardless of how you feel about this illegal migration bill, uh, the general policy from the Tories, it doesn't really matter. The question here fundamentally is about who gets to decide who rules. And we've found ourselves in a very strange situation in which it's controversial Mm. um, for a government to pursue a particular policy um, and to legislate for it and to be held accountable for it. I mean, because we have this anti-democratic imposition in the form of the ECHR. And that's something which is why it's so important that not only do we have these kind of democratic mechanisms, as it were, but that I think we leave the institution Totally. I think yeah. uh, not only has it become an anti-democratic imposition on states' ability to make their own policies, um, it's also in the context of, you know, the ECHR has been next to useless in terms of defending what should be surely considered some pretty fundamental human rights. You know, mm. hate speech laws across Europe have flourished over the time that the ECHR <laughs> has existed. It's, it's, a, it's a particular definition, shall we say, of what human rights are. Uh, the lockdowns. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, it's all of these things have been pursued, even some um, pretty brutal anti-migration policies pursued by Brussels and so on. This, the international human rights set didn't have very much to say about yeah. all of that. So th- this is a lot more political than people would like to make out. And I think the question of migration involves, uh, it's a political discussion, it can be a moral discussion in some ways, um, and that's one that you have to have out in society between political parties, between different individuals. I thought it was interesting seeing Caroline Lucas this week saying that these particular amendments were essentially vile insofar as it, mm. you know, desecrating the beloved ECHR and so on. She's more than entitled to think that the policy that the government wants to pursue is vile. But the idea <laughs> that you could be so attached yeah. to this, um, again, kind of imposition, effectively, mm. I think shows the fact that so much of the struggle has been over um, who gets to decide rather than what it is we're actually deciding. And whatever side you are on the this particular law, whatever you, side of you on this on the migration debate in general, we need to be able to have it out between ourselves. Otherwise, the issue becomes stultified, yeah. more inflamed than it otherwise has to be, um, and more dishonest mm. often. 
um, because of the fact that you often had Tory governments who would say one thing and do another. And that's partly been a product of the fact that they could always, in the same way they used to be able to blame the EU, they could also blame the ECHR. Yeah. And I mean, in the earlier stages of this bill, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, essentially said it might be illegal, might get struck back down by the courts. I mean, that is just a very dishonest way of um, dealing with the public. Look, you know, a lot of people do appeal to international law, whether it's this issue, the Northern Ireland Protocol, even back, you know, in the days of Iraq, where we so obviously want to oppose Iraq, but this international law gets fetishized. What's all that about? Well, international law is a funny system. It's not strictly binding on states. The, 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 there is political pressure to, to comply, and often that can be backed up with some form of legal judgment. But the way that international legal institutions are uh, are established means that quite often they're accused of being biased one way or the other. So the International Criminal Court, for example, uh, I think went 15, 20 years without ever prosecuting anyone who was white. Mm. <laughs> it, was, it was all uh, targeted at, uh, at countries in Africa and elsewhere. And there is this kind of selective application of international law. And, you know, the examples you mentioned uh uh, Iraq, most prominently, per- perhaps in people's imaginations, are examples where international law is very flexible to the interests of, of Western countries. Um, and I think also it's a means of um, kind of delegating out the authority for making a decision to, to somebody that's not a, a democratically accountable government. You know, I'm reminded of Keir Starmer saying that he preferred Davos to Westminster <laughs> and how he preferred the kind of company of the international uh, mm. elite, you know, that international law is, the, is, a, is, is quite often a code word for a kind of informal uh, way of doing things among states that only really applies when a state does something that the others don't want it to do. So yeah. it's a very f- flexible political instrument. And so when people say things, so in this migration discussion, we've heard a lot of people talking about breaking international law and how appalling that is. Well, the reality is that states break and bend international law all the time. And it is by its nature a kind of selectively imposed set of instruments. And um, before we move on, um, I just want to talk a bit about lawyers, because that's the sort of flip side of it. When judges are interfering a lot in politics, lawyers are also empowered to bring their own uh, cases um, and pursue their own bugbears. Let's talk about Jolien Morn, everyone's favourite fox battering barrister. His most recent case, he's got a God knows how many cases he's got going on. Um, It's been rejected by the Supreme Court. He's been ordered to pay the government's costs. Can you tell us a bit about that and about, you know, Morm's legal pursuits in general, Luke? Yeah, so his latest uh, loss uh, is uh, relatively narrow in in comparison to his history. So the Supreme Court have refused to hear his case uh, against the Prime Minister, uh, which became known as Good Law Project versus the Prime Minister. That was a case... Uh, about the use of uh, communication systems, private versus public communication systems that was rejected by first um, the High Court, then rejected by the Court of Appeal, and now the Supreme Court have refused to hear it. So, I mean, it's difficult. What you need to remember about this is the business model. Mm. So the Good Law Project goes out and raises sometimes £200,000 for a particular case. Morm himself makes no money from any of that, <clears throat> but he does pay a pool of lawyers to bring cases uh, in in pursuance of a particular end goal. And their website are quite they're, they're quite open in saying that often they'll bring cases for campaigning objectives, yeah. in order to kind of bring attention to an issue, which is not what the courts are for. Yeah. <laughs> and in their own latest reporting about their success rate, they say that um, the majority of their cases are lost. 
something like 55% mm. of their cases are lost. And then they have ways of saying, well, no, we lost this one, but it was a campaigning objective achieved in that we did X, Y, and Z. So, so a lot of people are earning a lot of money for bringing cases which quite often fail. And that, in any other uh, area of legal practice, would be considered a very significant black mark. Because as a lawyer, you're, you're under a duty to kind of assess the merits of your case and only, to, and only bring a case to a court and to use court time mm. if you think that it's worthy of that kind of adjudication. Here you have a system where the public, who aren't legally qualified, are invited to pay money over to some very well-heeled individuals in order to bring cases, the majority of which end up failing. And that just doesn't ring right for me at all. It seems as though judicial review, the processes of the High Court and the Court of Appeal, are being turned into a kind of playground, a political playground, for people who have the mechanisms to raise this, this amount of money. And you think, if I'm sure these lawyers are all very well-intentioned, right? People laugh at Joe Moore. I'm sure he's, he's got, I don't think he's got a bad bone in his body, right? But that money should be channeled into making the kind of changes that they're looking for in a political context. Mm. That money could be far better spent campaigning and democratically raising awareness around the issues that they're campaigning on rather than pouring it into litigation, which ends up in, you know, very, very often getting nowhere. I lose track of these cases, but are there any ones that particularly stand out? Seeing as he doesn't seem to have got the better of anyone since that fox on Boxing Day. So, so, so what? In terms of his recent losses, mm. as well as the three cases related to his case against the, um, the, the the Prime Minister, we have the allegations against uh, Matt Hancock and the procurement processes around PPE, and then. In terms of the, I mean, there is a table I can pull up. The, the, <laughs> they, they've, they've had to go and, because they've recently justifiably faced quite a lot of criticism for bringing so many cases that lose, mm. they've prepared a spreadsheet explaining why each case lost <laughs> and how they can take a victory from each one. You know, oh, this was a campaigning win in, with respect to X, Y, and Z. But it's not the way a normal law firm would operate. That There would be a lot greater scrutiny on the merits of bringing a case in any particular context. And the good the, these organizations and good law project is not the only one these kind of campaigning litigation centers mm. don't operate in the same way as other law firms there's less scrutiny on the kinds of cases that should be brought there's less justification for why they should be brought and i think that is a problem and is the you know is judicial review too um important a power should that be kind of curtailed a little bit well, judicial review has evolved over the last two decades. Originally, it was a power that was reserved strictly for where the executive, so the government of the day, uh, egregiously you know, broke the law and, mm. and acted in excess of its powers. Gradually, that uh, became applicable to more and more public bodies, so where local councils don't exercise their duties properly, uh, where they uh, exercise their powers in ways which are improper. Judicial review empowers citizens to challenge those decisions and to change them. All of that's a good thing. The problem is that now it's become used by a particular slice of society to make political points. Yeah. And as a result, actually, most recently, we've seen the, judici the judiciary pushing back against this and saying, no, um, judicial review needs to be tightly used for very specific purposes. And that is why the, the, the Good Law Project itself has actually made law on the issue of what is called standing, which is who can bring judicial review in the first place. So it, they're actually an authority on who can bring a judicial review on a particular issue. And the reason they do that is because they're constantly 
uh, they're bringing so much litigation yeah. <laughs> that the, the courts have turned around and said, is it right that they're able to bring so many cases like this? In the past few weeks, uh, Extinction Rebellion and its various offshoots have been disrupting major sporting events. Um, about a week ago, we had the Grand National was disturbed by Animal Rising, its animal rights offshoot of Extinction Rebellion. The World Snooker Championship was quite severely disrupted by someone throwing orange powder all over themselves, a Just Stop Oil activist. And now we're expecting the London Marathon to be targeted. That's where all our eyes are. Now, strangely, Extinction Rebellion have said that they're not going to do anything. They've even agreed that they will guard the marathon to stop other eco-activists from interfering because they are big fans of um, running. It seems very green motor transport. Very, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Tom, what do you make of this? Are they Surely they are eager to spoil our fun. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. It has become a very kind of explicitly anti-fun agenda in recent yeah. weeks, um, targeting, as you say, kind of uh, beloved national sports and pastimes with quite comical results, particularly with the um, Just Stop Oil stunt at the uh, at the Crucible. Um, as you say, there's this interesting schism, I suppose, which has emerged between mm. Extinction Rebellion, the kind of mothership of all of these different organisations, and Just Stop Oil, which seems to be at least presenting itself as the sort of more disruptive, radical end of it yeah um animal rising used to be animal rebellion they dropped the rising so they don't want to be associated with extinction rebellion so you're kind of seeing a bit of a people's front of judea kind of thing started to kick off amongst the environmentalists so much <laughs> mlk so. versus malcolm X. <laughs> I think flatter roger Hallam more than is, more than is necessary <laughs> but uh it is it's fascinating i mean it just it does show the kind of killjoy instincts of, of this and it's one of those things where you know, especially after the Grand National, you had Animal Rising saying this was about the safety of the animals and so on. It reminded me of that old quote about Puritans that they wanted to get rid of bear baiting, not because it gave pain to the bear, but it gave pleasure to the crowd. There's a kind of similar yeah. sort of thing happening here where not content with just making people's day-to-day lives a misery by blocking roads and so on, they want to get and meddle your pastimes as yeah. well. So the kind of killjoyism of it, mm. I think, has been much more pronounced in the past week or so. Yeah, someone somewhere might be enjoying themselves, mm-hmm. so we've got to put a, put a stop to it. Luke, I mean, the, the consistent line from these groups has been, well, you know, that thing, who cares about the snooker? The world's going to end. Why are you watching that? Look at this. I mean, it's bollocks, isn't it? Well, the first thing that struck me is, I, I forget, I, I did look up the snooker protester's name, but I think he is... It's sort of laughably posh name. Edred Whittingham. There we are. Yeah, yeah. So I knew straight Tom. out of a Ad <laughs> Pride's Head novel. Or I knew Tom Add that know. to Indigo Run Below. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's he's the son of a venture capitalist. Yes, yeah, so oh, yeah. yeah, so son of a venture capitalist <laughs> disrupting what you know the snooker, which is traditionally a working class pastime. Um, I, I mean, I think that the, the reason why these demonstrations are so controversial is that they clearly risk alienating the the precise people they need to be winning over what has snooker got to do with <laughs> oil you know it just for most people that, and and the, the the reaction at the snooker was obviously unanimous anger and, mm. and annoyance and and it is important to emphasize that people might have saved up quite a lot of money to go and see the snooker mm-hmm. that yeah. that would have meant the end of that game play suspended for the players it would have meant that any progress in that game was lost you know there is just a complete disregard for people's interests in these demonstrations. And it just seems like the worst way to win an argument you can imagine. And in terms of um, the kind of legal ramifications, mm-hmm. I mean, there's um, lots of discussion around the public order bill, a bill that seems pretty much designed to counter yeah. explicitly XR and its offshoots, insulate Britain in particular, one we haven't mentioned. They seem to have gone a bit quiet. You know, how should we be dealing with these protests? I mean, it's not 
simply a straightforward question of free speech is it if they're ju- if they're disrupting people's lives they're not you know they're not just making their point mm, i think i think there's a there's a couple of things we've got to kind of break up here because on the one hand uh, the rights protest is not an indivisible liberty. There is obviously points at which it encroaches mm. on others, encroaches on property, um, people's ability to go about their daily lives and so on. Um, and I think a lot of people are quite struck by the fact that it's so difficult to say clear people out the middle of a road and so on. You know, I don't think that strikes people as a particularly onerous restriction on the right to protest just mm. out of nowhere blocking streets en masse and so on. Uh, the problem is is that the government's response to it um, has been genuinely draconian. Yeah. So, um, We've had the public order bill most recently specifically trying to criminalise with pretty hefty punishments, things like locking on to things. Um, less controversial, these, uh, I think they're called serious disruption prevention orders, a very kind of ASBO era style kind of measure, stopping someone from associating with a certain group of people in a certain mm-hmm. place, carrying certain items. Um, I think um, the government even wants it to apply to people who don't have any criminal record and so on. So it's th- these are the sorts of things which are quite concerning. It comes off the back, this is where things get a bit confusing, I guess, of the, the policing bill, the Police yeah. Crime Sentencing Court now act um which introduced all of those restrictions that many people would have read about in the press around one person protests noise restrictions you know for protests is too noisy that's apparently a, a problem um and yet it seems to me and to many people that either the power should already exist to mm. deal with these people or they should be if if there are any loopholes which are obviously being exploited and which are posing uh not only a uh problem for people going about their lives but a safety issue in many cases in terms yeah. of some of the actions that were taken then that should be sort of discreetly dealt with but that's not really what we've had we've had a kind of over overreaction mm. uh an attempt to kind of posture as being against these crusty bloody left characters which is a comfortable position for the tory party to be in but it has come at the cost of protest yeah. definitely um i think the problem is um when arguing about this is the fact that in extinction rebellion and in protest movements more broadly in recent years is that's an increasingly difficult argument to make because these protests increasingly take the form of just the kind of whinging and hysteria of the middle classes mm. you know a, a, a form of political action which was supposed to be about the public the masses asserting themselves in situations where they weren't being listened to is basically being taken over by the irked and in this case apocalyptic middle classes who don't feel they're being listened to quite enough yeah. and that's a very different kind of proposition <laughs> that we found ourselves in that's a shame but and it makes it harder to argue for but it doesn't mean the right to protest should be encroached upon I don't think. yeah definitely and and Luke I mean what do you make of the sort of kid gloves treatment that a lot of the protests have got not just from police but also from you know judges there's been a few saying um, words to the effect of you're good people really are, uh, your cause is important etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah, well, this is the irony behind the flurry of legislation uh, that we've had, uh, the the kind of flurry of lawmaking around this issue recently, because the problem is not necessarily with the law, Mm. it's with the enforcement of the law and the question of how and when that is enforced. And as you mentioned, you know, I think a lot of people's frustration is not that the police don't have the power to move people out of the road, it's that when it comes to it, they're unwilling to do so. You know, we've seen time and time again where demonstrations uh, blocking roads have, have not been intervened with, uh, and people are wondering why. You mentioned the Extinction Rebellion uh, demonstrators who, when being sentenced, were told by a district judge that they were fundamentally good people um, and, and that, you know, he can support everything that they do. That's what makes this, there's this strange 
um, entitlement on behalf of these demonstrators who seem to believe, perhaps justifiably, that they have the machinery of the state kind of at their back mm. yeah. and that they're being facilitated in what they're doing by the fact that the law won't be enforced when when push comes to shove. And, you know, I've been reading some Extinction Rebellion commentary and some commentary from Just Stop Oil c- complaining about the severity of the sentences handed down in some circumstances to particular protesters. And you just sort of think, well, they, they feel as though they should be able to do whatever they want without any consequence at all. So I think that question needs to be addressed. It needs to be, we can't have a system where there is literally one law for Mm. protesters that the state agree with Mm. (laughs) and everyone else. Uh, That's not how we do the rule of law. Mm -hmm. And and Tom, finally, um, there is something, a lot of people have remarked upon the fact that they just keep going, even though everyone hates them. I mean, some people, some Less than clever people have suggested it's brave to, you know, disrupt the snooker and be booed at. <laughs> I, I think I've seen them likened to the suffragettes. I've seen like, yeah, people likened to the suffragettes. People have likened to the suffragettes. Yeah, um, pretty incredible. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> obviously, I don't agree with that comparison. But <laughs> is, do you think there's something almost cult-like about it? You know, the fact that, that just this total indifference to public opinion, to public opprobrium. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are gripped by a very apocalyptic idea, a very mm. kind of millenarian idea i mean when people see so many people resort to these tactics and i think it was that 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 young woman who got up on the gantries over the m25 and started crying about how she didn't have a future and so on you see many of these activists including your man from at the crucible yeah. talking about he's not gonna have children because he can't bring them up in a world of eco death and so on yeah fears which are not borne out by even a pretty mainstream reading of the evidence shall we say <laughs> um is the fact that they have imbibed a very extreme notion which is that the world's going to hell in the handcart that humankind is kind of sinned upon the planet that 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 we're reaping what we sow if you look at what particularly like roger hallam already mentioned the kind yeah. of one of the co-founders of extinction rebellion now the alleged mastermind between just behind just stop oil he literally has a video on youtube addressed to young people quote as they face annihilation in which he describes a future in which marauding rape gangs will go around and poke your eyes out. I mean, this is... this with is cigarettes. With cigarettes <laughs> and hot sticks. It's very graphic, you know, but it's, it's, this is the sort of thing which they're being fed. So on the one hand, you think, you know, you can't be surprised that they take this issue so seriously, but it is mad. Mm. I think that the, the concern is, and this goes to, to Luke's point as well, is the fact that a uh, a more diluted version of this is pretty mainstream yeah. anyway. And it is the guiding principle of so many policies which are taken, even quite damaging ones. So in Just Stop Oil, you just get the most extreme example, almost taking um, a mainstream eco-austerity, doom-laden mindset mm. to its logical conclusion, really. So when you, it's not just about challenging them, it's about challenging the whole edifice, if you like, of all that very anti-human thinking that's been going on for a very long time. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.